Welcome to Room for Growth. A Willow Tree podcast about growth marketing hosted by Billy Lowen and me, Billy Fisher. Whether you're an industry expert or just getting started, there's plenty of room to grow. Share this episode with your favorite coworker, follow us wherever you enjoy podcasts, and reach out if you'd like to join the show. You ready, Billy? I'm ready, Billy. Let's go. Let's f***ing grow. So I'd like to introduce Nate Wooten. He is our partner and VP of commercial strategy at Willow Tree. Nate earned his Bachelor of Science in software engineering from the University of Virginia. And then he has since obtained a whole bunch of certificates in all kinds of areas of digital product leadership and innovation. He's, for instance, Agile and Scrum certified. So he's got a bit of that like project management aspect for how you build software. He holds a certificate in business analysis from George Washington University, a certificate in business innovation from IDO University, um, which is pretty well known as one of the best firms in product innovation. Um, He also has a certificate in UX design from General Assembly. And he is currently enrolled at Stanford's Graduate School of Business, where he's pursuing a degree in leadership and digital innovation. Nate's expertise in digital innovation has taken him all over the world. He's been invited to give talks on the subject from Apple to client conferences in Hong Kong. His insights into the sort of ever-changing landscape of client innovation are highly sought after by businesses of all sizes. And then at Willow Tree, Nate leads an award-winning strategy and design thinking practice. He and his team take a build-measure-learn approach to generating new digital concepts. So Nate, so excited to have you here. You are overdue. We have been talking about getting you onto the podcast. I'm glad we're finally making it happen. And today we're going to talk a lot about something that's a little in but out of my wheelhouse, which is really what are the frameworks for developing a digital product that create delight for the end user? How do businesses really stand out in this space when there are so many apps, there are so many websites, there's so much noise, there's so many bad experiences? What we really focus on is how to be the best, how to have the best digital experience possible. And we spend a lot of time talking about how to create delight for users. Before we really jump in, will you please explain what you mean by delight and how the digital product universe defines what delight is? Sure. Yeah. Thanks for inviting me, Billy. I'm a big fan of the podcast. I am delighted to be here. So if we could capture this, that's the definition of delight. Delight is just a word. So it depends who you ask in the space of UX and innovation. You'll get different answers around what it means, depending on who you ask. For me, delight implies a little bit of surprise. So I don't know if you've had a digital experience that is just so great, you're surprised. There are a few frameworks that we can shake out just exactly what features will surprise people or not. So putting it into an example, the first time you got on a plane, you sit in your seat, you get a push notification. I know Tobias was just explaining this in his recent episode, but So let's continue that story a little bit. You sit in your seat and you get a push notification. Your luggage has made it successfully on the flight. The first time I saw that, I was delighted because I wasn't expecting it. There was an element of surprise. And that's the key for delight is this factor of expectation. So I really think that's what comes into this whole definition of delight. How do we find those things, those features that our customers want, but don't know they want them. How cool is that? That's delight. And there are a few different frameworks that help you separate those delight features from just must-have, table-stake, basic features. And I think that's really cool. I think it's 
cool to help clients find these delight moments and mark them and figure out how to set up roadmaps so they can build them. Yeah, definitely. But I mean, let's talk about this. Let's just like ground people in kind of reality because when you're thinking about investing potentially millions of dollars in an app or a website, there's a lot of different things you have to potentially prioritize. There is just the performance generally. There's sort of different ways that you could categorize delight in comparison to other types of features. So again, yeah, like the negative might be repulsive features or features people are just indifferent to, they don't really care about, or they have some level of indifference to. Talk to us a little bit about how you think about this categorization. I mean, there are like some features that are just sort of table stakes. People might not be delighted by them, but they have to have them. What's sort of the balance here? How do you, how do you work through that? Yeah, Billy. So I heard two things. Why is delight important? I mean, we have millions of dollars set up against a roadmap. Why should we prioritize delight? And then I heard what different categories of features are out there that we have to prioritize against. So first, let's just pause on why delight is important. And for me, one of the studies that I think is really applicable is a study done by Forrester in 2020, where they created a CX index that can measure basically your CX score of a brand. So a lot of brands have very similar user journeys, the similar phases. There's always a discovery phase where you're thinking about what is this brand? What is the value they give me? There's a conversion phase. There's an onboarding phase where you convert and you're kind of getting used to the brand. There's the first time you repurchase, so on and so forth, all the way to I'm a brand ambassador. I am actively telling friends I love this brand. So you can think that phase, that journey applies to a lot of different companies. And so what Forrester's done is they've created a score, one to 100, that measures how delighted, how satisfied people are across this journey. And so what they found was for billion-dollar companies, for every one point they move on the CX index, it correlates to another $175 million in revenue generated. So creating delight, creating happy customers, of course, is really important. So that's kind of point one. The other trends that I think is is really helpful tying this all to revenue and, and making sure it's prioritized is this idea of setting a premium level for the delight features. So by that, I mean, there's two types of features as we've shared really in my mind, they're delight features and must have features. If we were to give the must have features away for free, but these novel features, these delight features that they're the features that you want, but you didn't really know you wanted them that bad. That's where we can set a premium price point. And so there are a lot of brands out there trying to find these delight moments because that's really where they can tier different pricing models. So an example there, of course, is Strava. I don't know if you're a Strava user, Billy. I don't know if you've showed up on my feed, but there's a basic level that'll give you some basic data. Here's how long your run was. Here, how, here's how fast you were. But the delight features they charge for, and they do a great job of showing you these features and what possibly your digital experience could look like with some advanced stuff around heart rates or projected race times or these sorts of advanced analytics. So basically two main reasons why stakeholders should care about delight. It it will directly tie to a better CX overall, which drives revenue, but it can be set as a tiered model for for pricing in your digital experience. 
That's really interesting, though. I like using a few specific examples because I think the Strava one is really great where it's like you can use kind of our baseline map your run feature for free. There's what you get. But then you can pay for these sort of like additional tiers of benefits on top of it. I think of like dating apps as maybe the best example of that. Where sure, you can come here, you can use the dating app, our algorithm will match you with people. But if you want to be able to like see more information about them or have more control over your dating experience, you have to pay a little bit more. That's a really good, I think, example of how to monetize delight. How do you know when you really need delight just to stand out above the crowd? Like I think about industries where the digital experience really struggles to be differentiated. Things like ubiquitous weather apps that people use all the time or a map app, for instance, or even to that point, like apps that you have to use, basically your airline app when you're flying. When do you decide to provide delight as sort of a core benefit of that experience in and of itself versus when to monetize? Or is that even something you consider and think about? Like what's the baseline experience versus what's the above and beyond for monetization? So I guess a few thoughts come to mind. The first is in general, delight's a little bit of a moving target. So it's tricky. There's not a strict formula on when you should do delight and when you shouldn't. So an example that I think resonates is the first time the iPhone came out, it had a touch screen, OMG. Everyone freaked out. They were delighted. It used to be the iPod had the little spinny wheel and then it would go click, 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 click. And then all of a sudden, screens respond to my fingers. Everyone was delighted. It was great. And now if you think about it, you don't get delighted when you touch a touch screen. It's a must-have feature. So it's a sliding scale over time. And that's what the trick of this is. As, as technology becomes adopted, the features become adopt, adopted and customer expectations continue to rise. So it's a moving target. So first, just sharing that. If you don't tackle delight features on your roadmap, they'll soon become must-have features and you're going to have to tackle them anyway. So that's sort of a, a thought and a, and a trend as you, as you think about creating delight. The other way I think about it, I guess, is through vertical slices. So... You can imagine a long laundry list of features and you're focusing on all the must-have features. And it's pretty clear that you're not going to prioritize your developer's time to build the light features when there's there are critical features here that are absolute must-haves. They'll always lose the battle. But if you create a if you just slice them out into flows to create thin vertical slices, it's easier to think about delight. So maybe there's a new booking experience that shows you an aggregate view of, of all the rooms possible. So that's one specific slice. And then at the end of that flow in the success state, you can kind of have that mic drop dopamine release moment of congrats, you did it and kind of install a little bit of delight. So I guess that's another way to think about it. Your question was more, how do we like know when we can charge for delight? Is that really what your question was? Yeah. How do you know when you can like monetize delight versus when to just include it as like apps are hard to drive adoption through. We know this, that um, just because you build an app doesn't mean that people will use it or will build the habits to use it. And I think delight is a big component of that. If there are good feelings associated with using this product or it provides some kind of benefit out of the gate or some kind of unexpectedness, the likelihood that you will like adopt that digital experience or have a better positive interaction with the brand are very high. So I'm always curious, you know, what's sort of the um, 
Delta Airlines example of what's the basic included package versus the like Spirit Airlines? And how do you know which experience is sort of like baseline acceptable for your brand? Yeah, that's a great question. So for that, we have a phase in our process called the evaluative phase, and we can bucket different ideas uh, accordingly, just into the categories you just described. We sometimes use the Kano model. So this was invented uh, in the 80s by someone named Noriaki Kano. Um, it's a famous model, and it tackles just the problem you were, were suggesting is, how do we know when we have a delight feature? And he measures value or satisfaction against expectations. Remember at the beginning of the podcast, I said this was delightful because I wasn't expecting it. So if we can measure expectation and expectations low, but the value is high, then we know we have a delight feature that could potentially be differentiated. And so first of all, that's great. That's really valuable to know. But I love this model because there are other types of features too. There must have features. Their performance features, the more of these things you put into the app, the more valuable it'll be. It's just a direct linear scale. And then, as you said, they're repulsive features. So, must have features. Let's think about a hotel. They're not going to increase your delight, they're not going to increase your experience. So, for example, a must have feature is hot water. You're not going to write home about a hotel having hot water, but if it's not there, you're going to have a negative experience. So they don't really move the needle for you. But if there are cookies in the lobby, then that's a delight feature. It's something you weren't expected. And then there are repulsive features. We have a, a, a research facility here. I'm actually in it. That's a two-way mirror here. Sometimes we have ideas. We, we use some of these models. We kind of place them into various buckets. I've had a few repulsive ideas where customers are literally turned off by the feature so spoiler alert, a lot of features that are uh, community-based or socially focused, a lot of times can create a sort of negative reaction. I don't need my business being shared with all my friends. It was I remember what it was. It was a feature for a media client that would show people what you're watching. Because how great is that? You find the best shows based on your friend recommendations... But uh, it tested repulsively. People did not want everyone to know <laughs> that when they go home from work, they're watching the Kardashians. They want them to think they're watching sophisticated nature documentaries or something. So repulsive features are, are real. And so the model helps you slice, slice them all out. I love the idea that you go home at night and you like talk to your partner about the repulsive ideas that you had that day. I think that's hilarious. It's a humbling process. This is not like a repulsive idea, but how do you categorize things like you could have to fill out this payment form or, and it won't auto-generate your credit card, it won't auto-generate your name and you will be frustrated, or you could just use like the Apple Pay integration and be able to pay with two-click. How do you take things like that that become just like so delightful in terms of their usability? They take so much friction out of the user experience for an app. Where do you put those in sort of your repulse first delight spectrum? Or are those just totally separate, different ways of thinking? To me, that falls under usability, which is a little bit different than delight. So basically, we're at a point with expectations that everything should be usable. And so as we're sharing different models for our listeners to think about delight, this one I think might be helpful for you all. So Aaron Walter wrote a book, and we'll kind of link these books for you to Designing for Emotion. 
that helps you think about just what you ask, Billy. It's called the hierarchy of user needs. It's a little bit ripped off from Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but you can visualize a pyramid on the very base of the pyramid is, is functional. So does the experience just do what it's supposed to do? Above that is reliable. Above that is is usable. And, and I think now we're kind of getting into your point, uh, how many clicks does this take? Eight clicks versus two clicks. And then at the very top of the pyramid is pleasurable. So if we have all of those layers checked, then we have really delightful experiences. Mm. And so... A lot has to happen these days for us to be delighted. I don't know. I want to make fun of us a little bit. Like everything's so good. Why do we ever get frustrated? But we we just get frustrated so easily. Like something took four clicks instead of two. I'm having a bad day. Like we're all just so... Totally. Sometimes the the UX space just kind of... I think it's it's almost comical. But that's a lot. All those like layers in the pyramid have to add up for something to be delightful. So... If you can improve something from four clicks to two clicks, then you increase the usability. And that's one more check mark on your pyramid of delight there. I think it's so true. That's hilarious. Like me, I am buying a house right now. So I'm spending an enormous amount of time on Zillow. And I was thinking about this this morning because if Zillow doesn't show me every single house that could potentially fit the needs that I'm looking for, I find myself being so frustrated. Like the fact that I can use a filter on their map and it will show me the homes hypothetically that like fit in my budget range, number of bedrooms, whatever it is that I'm looking for. But then occasionally like some houses just won't show up. So maybe I'll find them because I'm looking at another house and it'll be in like the, here's houses like the one that you just looked at. Like the fact that Zillow sorts thousands and thousands of pieces of data to surface a content experience that is so delightful to me and so helpful and so usable. And then I will still get frustrated if there is like one item in this massive catalog that might be what I'm looking for and it hasn't been like perfectly surfaced is a hilarious example in my mind of the level of expectation that we have today around the user experience, but also the reliance we have. Like, it's not as if buying a home is a small experience. Like, this is an important tool in my journey here, but it's such an interesting case to your point. Yeah, and it continues to rise. I mean, expectations are rising. It's like a constant tide that keeps being elevated. And now we have AI and and we have chat GPT and things are getting faster. We have voice, multimodal experiences. I mean, it's a good thing for digital agencies, I guess, and that the bar keeps on always rising um, and the clients always need to meet these expectations that keep on moving. But yeah, I think that's that's a great point. Zillow is doing a lot for you. And I think you touched on like a negativity bias. It just takes one bad experience to have the whole thing crashing down. And so I think it, it's difficult. The cards are often stacked against us in creating delight. So Nate, before we get into just like a few frameworks, like let's get into some of the tips and tools and things that our listeners can actually use to help make their digital product experience better or help create some evaluations for their company. I want to go back to something that you said before. You talked about vertical slices. Uh, We use the words vertical slices inside Willow Tree all the time. So that term has become one that just within the hallways, I think there's good collective understanding of what it means. But will you give a description of what a vertical slice is again, but take us even more elementary so we can start to build on 
why vertical slices are important, why we talk in this language, why we use this as a tool to just sort of like break down pieces of work, basically? Yeah. So in general, the idea around creating great experiences is we need to increase the build, measure, learn cycles. We as humans don't really get things right the first time. And so the faster you can just create something and react to it, the better it's going to be once you get on iteration three, iteration four, iteration five. So instead of thinking about this whole app from an exhaustive waterfall approach where you have it all designed, you have every flow figured out, every error state, every edge case, instead of you just pick one slice from the pie, if you can create a visual of a pie, or let's do cake. Pie is a little controversial. Everyone loves cake. Um, if you were to slice a cake, then then it's just easier. And, and so essentially, it's just a path through an experience. We often start with the golden path. So what is the happy path in your digital app? Let's get that really well sort of ironed out. And then we can figure out other slices. As we are thinking about delight, there's, there's just kind of a few different um, models. Well, one more model I want to talk about that I think will help you figure out which slices you should slice off in the first place. One more model to visualize a three-legged stool. And this is really the thought work of Don Norman, who wrote The Design of Everyday Things. Also, for the UX listeners out there, is the Norman and Nielsen Norman group. And he thinks that there's three types of delight. So um, there's visceral delight. And this is really superficial. If you look at an app with a photo of the Caribbean, you're going to experience visceral delight. You're going to be like, oh, this is delightful. I like this. That's pretty easy to do. And it's, it's, this model's really similar to the pyramid, but it's a little superficial. The next is, is cooler. And I think this is where your team plays a lot, Billy, and, and my team. And, and this is behavioral delight. And this is really around task completion and more closely aligned to vertical slicing that we were talking about. But when you complete a task, was it viscerally pleasing, but was it also usable? We're getting to usability again. And the metaphor I like to use here is um, shoes. So do your shoes look good? Check, that's visceral. But are they comfy and would you wear them every day? That's behavioral. And I think as we create behavioral delight, that gets a little bit more complicated in a good way and, and gets customers coming back because it solves a need. So we talked about the end state for some task you've completed. That should be delightful. It was usable. You can add some sort of reward at the end. That was stool leg number two. Stool leg number three. And this is really cool. And we're doing this with some of our financial services clients. And I think this is really where a lot of digital trends or a lot of digital experiences are heading. This is reflective delight. And so in this one, the digital experience is almost a mirror. So it shows you, Billy, who you aspire to be. And I think this is the best part of Delight because it, it keeps us coming back to achieve a higher s- sense of self. So I know gamification is a little bit of a 2011 word, but it works. It works because it shows progress towards goals. Uh, so you can imagine two types of workout apps. One shows you just a list of workouts you can do, but the other shows you, Billy, that you're on a 10-day streak you are really giving it your all and it can tell. So it's thanking you. And look, you're coming closer to your health-related goals. It's sort of reflecting who you want to be back to you. And that's where we see a lot of engagement. That's the apps that really make a difference in people's lives. Those are the ones that make a splash. So if you think about 
how you slice your slices on your cake, pick the ones that really emphasize behavior, usability, and some way of reflecting to the user who they are. And that's where you can get the most engagement. Give some examples of where we're seeing good behavioral examples in digital experiences today and where we're seeing reflective experiences. Yeah. So, and there's a lot of debate around this behavioral is like behavioral delight is so commonplace that it, I think it's just must have now. Like everything should be usable. Everything should be accessible. We should be designing for inclusive audience. Like that all just kind of get, gets wrapped up to behavioral delight for me. Things just, just need to work and, and behave the way we expect them to. So, geez, I, you can grab any app in the app store. And if it has five stars, I guarantee you it, it's honoring the behavioral delight uh, rule. And then reflective delight, any aspirational app. So continuing on, or Headspace, I think, does a great job. It shows like the different modules of meditation that I've unlocked. It makes me think, gosh, maybe I am more self-confident because I finished this self-confidence course. Or maybe I am more peaceful now because I finished this peaceful course. I think Headspace does a great job at it. The other thing Headspace does, by the way, as long as we're on the topic, is introduces randomness. I have trouble sleeping sometimes. They do sleep casts where you can listen to bedtime stories and you can fall asleep to them. Here's the thing. Even though they're, it's the same sleep cast, they introduce randomness. So the story changes a little bit each time. And introducing randomness is another way of just creating delight in, in your user experiences. Because again, it's not expected. And randomness keeps people coming back, seeing if things are different. I feel like the one thing we're kind of missing is a few examples. Like as much as we can talk about like really tangible examples of how these concepts are being applied, I think that's the most graspable. We could go there, but is there somewhere else that you want to dive into while we have a few minutes? Yeah. So we have some helpful links for those that want to get started on their journey to creating delight. I know the Jobs to be Done framework has been mentioned a few times. I think it was mentioned on Jared Cady's episode and Margot Bolka's episode. But I want your listeners to know there's a free template they can use if they want to use the Jobs to be Done framework. So as we've been talking about, Delight's a whole pyramid and at the bottom level is digital experience addresses some need. How do we find those needs? And that's where the Jobs to be Done framework comes in expectations are rising. No one wakes up at the beginning of the day and says, I want to engage in technology. No, you want to get a job done. You want to complete a task. Technology should be invisible. You just want to get the job done. And so that's where this framework comes in is that it takes a tech agnostic approach of what is the underlying job that you should do and helps you map it out. I'm sure a lot of our listeners have seen journey maps before. To me, a journey map is a little anecdotal. I look at it and say, great, now what? We have a release coming up in two months. What do I do with this map? The Jobs to be Done framework applies priority to the journey map. It literally measures how important is each step and how satisfied are you currently. So if something's really important, but your satisfaction's low, boom, that's where we should focus. And so it really helps a lot of our clients just figure out where the actionable next steps are. So We'll link you to a free template you can download on the Jobs to be Done framework. And I think that's a good start. Just um, a few other resources. I really think Dr. Thomas Stokes, who's a good friend of Willowtree and part of the Willowtree Alumni Network, he talks a lot about these methods too. You can see some of the content he writes 
at, and I'm going to share a, a website with you and we'll link it to, it's called the UXRs annotation dot substack.com. So it's UXRs, like UX researchers, UXRs annotations.substack.com. And I also share a lot of these frameworks that I collect that I think are really cool on my on my website, which is natewooten.com. So it's W-O-O-T-T-E-N in the last name. So there's some more resources there for you all if you want to get started. What are some of your favorite examples in market of apps that are really nailing the delight game versus apps that are lacking? And I can give you one of my favorite examples right now. Um, every time I use the Tesla app, I don't have a Tesla, but a friend of mine has a Tesla and I have access to their app for their Tesla. I am so mad at the Audi app for being so far behind the delight features of the Tesla app. I can't even start. It's making me want to buy a Tesla because first of all, they have dog mode. So if you have left your dog in the car already having dog mode, what a great feature that the car just like stays the temperature you need it to so that your friend can be comfortable. But then you can turn on the cameras in the car so you can see that your dog is okay. What a delight. Love it. You can also see like what music's playing. You know everything about where it's parked. You know if a door was left ajar. You know if your trunk was left open. Like just the amount of delight features that I feel like are built into the Tesla experience right now to make your life easier, to make car maintenance and like the safety of your vehicle better are outrageous relative, I think, to like any other car brand. And again, yeah, I'm an Audi customer. Like I love my Audi, but like, come on, the app experience could use some love. Yeah, no, I think that's spot on. And I will be scratching my head here to think of a brand that's creating delight faster and at scale compared to Tesla. Um, So I'm just going to jump on the Tesla bandwagon with you. They have a camping mode where it knows your camping will turn the dash into like a little campfire. It keeps the the air circulating in your car. One of my good friends, Steve Gordon, who's a designer at Willow Tree, he has a Tesla and he he sets it into camping mode all the time. So they they think about delight. And again, it comes down to expectation. They're surprised there. These are these are problems you had that you didn't know you had that they've already solved for. That brings me to one of my most favorite personal questions. Obviously, on this podcast, we talk about what creates true loyalty to a brand. So I'm curious, what brands are you actually loyal to and why? I think the first one that comes to mind, I'm a convenience person. So anything that will save me time just jumps to the top of the list. So Starbucks comes to mind. I don't like lines. I just can't do them. If there's any app that lets me order ahead, and have mobile pickup, I'm there. So the Starbucks app just kind of comes to mind first. So, And then the only other brand I'm really loyal to, I think, is Willow Tree. <laughs> if you work at Willow Tree... Nate, how long have you, have you worked at Willow Tree now? I have worked at Willow Tree coming up on nine years. So I started back when apps were cool. Yeah, totally. Which means you have to, in my calculation, I mean, I'm the mathematician around here, own approximately 4,000 t-shirts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My partner and I, we don't go shopping for anything ever because everything in our house has the Willow Tree brand on it. Socks, jackets, hats, scarves. We just need a... We're, we're thinking about getting a dog. We need a Willow Tree branded dog now. It's true. The number of Yeti cups that I have, like the one thing that I will say is consistent is if I have a new guest come to my house, 
stay there long enough that they have to open the cabinet where I keep like cups and coffee cups and stuff, they will immediately be like, why do you have nine Yeti cups? Why are they all so nice? Why are they Willow Tree branded? And I'll be like, would you like three of them? Take them. More are coming. (laughs) It is pretty insane, but... They must think you are a very thirsty person. (laughs) Uh, Nate, thank you so much for being here today. It has been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for kicking me off my own podcast. It's honestly time. Two Billies is one too many. So I think a, I think a violent acquisition is certainly in order. But Nate, can't wait to have you on again sometime in the future. Um, as Nate mentioned, there are a whole bunch of links and resources in the description of today's show. So feel free to check those out. We would love to see you using them. And we will see you next week on Room for Growth. Thanks, Billy. It's been a delight.